We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 14 today, all right? So if you have your Bibles or you have your devices, your gadgets, 1 Samuel 14. Uh, It won't be on the screen initially, but as we work through the message, uh, then we'll have different uh, verses on the screen uh, later on. So I'm just going to read this to you from verse 1 all the way through to verse 23. So it's quite quite a large section. And maybe we'll have some time for some teaching after that. We'll see. All right, so now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass at Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was a son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash, the other to the south towards Giba. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on then, we will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be a sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. Uh, Climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and feet, with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then, panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces, see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth Avon. Lord God, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can learn uh, from, from Scripture. I thank you that uh, you have given us uh, great teaching uh, in this series and uh, from your word. And I pray that today you will open our hearts, that we would receive uh, something new, something fresh. Even if we know this story well, Lord God, I pray that we will uh, receive uh, new revelation today, direct from you, and it will change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. 
Amen. So, uh, Dream Builders is our series at the moment, and just to give you a quick recap, the idea behind this series is it's a series about the potential of the church. It's a series uh, where we are asking ourselves to dream and to get a vision and to think about the future of the church, and in particular, the future of this church. We're giving ourselves permission to think big, okay, to have a, to have a vision, to try and see what God sees, because we know that God sees beyond. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. We're trying to get God's thoughts on this, and we don't want to limit our dreams to the size of our capacity, because Jesus said that he would build his church, and if he's going to build his church, then we don't need to limit our dreams to our size, because we need to have the right perspective, the right proportion, because he's going to build it. And I was reading this week about uh, somebody who, who kind of dreamed big dreams. It was uh, kind of one of the very first missionaries, a guy called William Carey, okay? And he's known, actually, as the father of modern missions. Um, he was a school teacher and pastor, but God gave him a vision. God gave William Carey a vision for reaching beyond kind of England and into, into far-off countries. And he would spend days and weeks and months poring over maps, looking at various countries, and with this urge, this great desire to go and minister in other countries, and particularly India. Um, but he was part of the Baptist movement at that point, and, and at that point, the Baptist movement said, well, we don't believe this is the right thing. If God wants to reach them, then he will reach them. But William Carey had this dream and he said, no, 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 I really feel that God is calling me to gather some more missionaries and go out to them. And he, and he preached and he, and he ended up writing a manifesto about, about going away on missions. And one of the things he said that he kept coming back to, he kept saying in his messages and in his manifesto was this, and I've made this the title of, of the message today. He said this, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Now, as you look at these two kind of statements, they're almost kind of, they're almost opposed because when you kind of attempt something, it's like, I'm going to attempt it. I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to try my luck. I'm going to, I'm going to just, just have a go at something. It's a, it's a bit of a shot in the dark. Whereas when you expect something, there's a confidence in expectation that there maybe isn't in attempting something. When you're expecting something, you anticipate a victory. You're counting on it. There's a certainty there. And, and as I was kind of praying about this message today, and I felt like this was the message that God had, I was thinking about us. And I was wondering whether there are a number of us who have maybe feel like we've hit a dead end that maybe we have um, got to a point where our lives actually feel almost aimless and apathetic, and maybe we look back fondly to a time in our past where we were really going for it, where we could sense God's dream and God's vision on us, but we haven't felt like that for a while. And we haven't really attempted anything big in a while for God. Um, maybe our expectation of God has, has mirrored our expectation of ourselves, and that's just right, really low, and, and we've stopped expecting, which means we've stopped attempting. And if that is 
And if that is you, can I suggest that maybe you've lost your dream? You've lost your vision for the future. And you need to either ask God to rekindle again that dream you once had. Light that fire in you again. Or you need to say, light a new fire in me, God. Give me a sense of purpose. Give me a sense of something bigger, than something outside of myself, something that I can move towards. Then as we start to, to move in that, as we start to live and walk in faith, uh, because remember we walk by faith, not by sight. That's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. We move by faith, not by sight. Then maybe we can expect great things from God. And if we expect great things, maybe that will lead us to attempting great things. Because I think actually, if we do this, then we will do this. This comes first. If we expect great things from God, then that means we'll have the confidence to attempt great things for God. And I think this is what a dream builder looks like. People who expect and attempt. Okay, um, 20 years ago, our family were living uh, in a house called Ronald McDonald House. Okay, exactly 20 years ago, around about this time, uh, time of year, exactly 20 years ago. We were li- and it sounds amazing, doesn't it? Ronald McDonald House, it's like burgers every day. Uh, it wasn't like that. I don't know if you know Ronald McDonald House. It's, it's a charity that's set up by, by McDonald's. And they put houses next to hospitals for families who've got children in the hospital. So families have somewhere to stay next to the hospital, so they don't have to go miles away. And, uh, and as you know, our JJ, he had a heart condition, and he was having heart surgery, and he was in Guy's Hospital in London Bridge. And, and we was living, uh, Fru and I and Gideon, uh, were living in Ronald McDonald House. And it's, it's in this area of London Bridge. I don't know if you know where Guy's Hospital is. And 20 years ago, it was a really dingy and dirty, not, it wasn't a particularly nice area. It was quite dark, uh, you know, narrow streets. There weren't nice buildings there. And it's kind of true for, for that whole of that Southwark area. It wasn't particularly nice. Not like if you go across the river to the north side of the river in London, you end up with, you know, Trafalgar Square and Charing Cross and Westminster. You've got all these amazing, beautiful buildings and, and historic things. But the south of the river just hadn't had the same investment. Uh, and it really wasn't particularly nice until somebody had the dream and the idea to build this. Anybody know what this is? The Shard. Yeah, this is the Shard. This is Guy's Hospital here. And we were there before the Shard was built. And we would be up there and we'd be looking out across uh, London, uh, uh, kind of in towards the top floor of Guy's Hospital. And it was pretty good. But look at the size of the shard compared to that. It's an amazing building. And now this was built on the south side of the river. And from the top of this building, you can see St. Paul's Cathedral. You can see the Tower of London. Uh, on a clear day, you can actually see as far to west as Wembley and as far east as the O2 in Greenwich. I mean, it's amazing views from the top of the shard. Uh, and apparently, you can go and eat a meal there. I've never done it. It'd be lovely to do one day. Um, but there was a guy who had this vision to build this thing. And it was a guy called Irvin Sellers. Now, Irvin Sellers, he, he started his life as a, um, he, he owned clothing shops in the 1960s and 70s in Carnaby Street. But he ended up buying the buildings his shops were in and ended up becoming a property guy. And he owned uh, one of the properties in London Bridge. It was called uh, Southwark Tower. And it was just a bland kind of block, square block. But he stood on top of this block one day and he had a vision. He had a dream of tearing down this block and replacing it 
with something that would transform not only the skyline, but would transform the area around it. And everybody said, it ain't going to happen. There is no way you will get this thing built there. You'll never get the finance for it, for a start. You'll never get planning permission for this in the south of the river. There are, no, there are no other skyscrapers on the south of the river. Most of the skyscrapers, as you know, are in Canary Wharf. There's a few more now in the city. But back then, there was no other. said, you're not going to get the permission to build this. It's never going to happen. But he had a dream. It's, a, it's built on one of the largest train stations and tube stations in London, London Bridge. Um, and they said, you'll never kind of work out the design to make it work and to build over this train station. But he had a dream that there would be a building there. So he employed uh, an Italian architect called Lorenzo Piano who came up with the design for the Shard. And, and he put in plans and he, and he started to get drawings and started to, to pursue his idea. Um, English Heritage and the planning departments, they came back and said, no, no way. In fact, this is what English Heritage said about the Shard. It is a structure that would destroy forever some of the most famous views of London and create an inhuman environment around its already congested base, particularly worried about the damage the tall bill tower would do to views of St. Paul Cathedral and the Tower of London, which were protected. So English heritage, as you can imagine, they're, they're thinking, we, we, it's our job to protect St. Paul's and the Tower of London. And they weren't saying that you wouldn't be able to see those buildings because of the shot. They were saying, wherever you are in London, if you wanted to take a picture, this thing is going to be in your picture. This big monstrosity is going to be there. You want a nice picture of you in the Tower of London? You're going to have this big shard in the background. It's going to spoil the view from everywhere. And it's interesting that actually a couple of centuries before this, Paris had exactly the same response to the Eiffel Tower. Um, Everyone in Paris said, there's no way you can build this thing. In fact, this was a public letter that was written at, that time, at the end of the 1800s. We writers, painters, sculptors, architects, and passionate devotees of the hitherto untouched beauty of Paris protest with all our strength, with all our indignation in the name of slighted French taste against the erection of this useless and monstrous Eiffel Tower. Imagine for a moment a giddy, ridiculous tower dominating Paris like a gigantic black smoke stack, crushing under its barbaric bulk Notre Dame, the Tour Saint-Jacques, the Louvre, the Dome of Les Invalides, Les Arc de Triomphe, all of our humiliated monuments will disappear in this ghastly dream. They didn't want it. They didn't want the Eiffel Tower. They said, it's going to spoil the view. Now, who of us can imagine Paris now without the Eiffel Tower? Has anybody ever been to Paris here? Has anybody ever taken a picture with the Eiffel Tower in shot? Yeah, maybe on the, on the palm of your hand or, or held up like this. Yeah, we, I've done that. In fact, yeah, Charlotte went to Paris earlier uh, this year, and there she is. She took a picture with her and the Eiffel Tower in shot. In fact, actually, I've got to admit to you, I, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole. As I was looking at this, I started to look at photos of, of the Eiffel Tower, and I came across this photo, and it made me laugh because... <laughs> He completely missed, missed it. But he actually put this on a forum and he said, can someone please Photoshop the Eiffel Tower under my finger? And of course, being the helpful people that uh, people are in forums, somebody did and wrote the Eiffel Tower <laughs> under his finger. 
And this is where it started to get deeper into the rabbit hole, because I started to look at other things that people had done to this guy. So they'd taken his finger and moved it up to there, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. They'd taken it from there and moved it to there. I quite like this one. At this point, I started to laugh. I was just crying with laughter at the things people had done. Uh, somebody had made the whole thing fall down. And then we've got this one. They moved his, his whole arm under there. Yes. And it just got more and more ridiculous as we went on. People are so helpful, aren't they? Um, until finally, somebody obviously took pity on him and, and, and created this for him. Um, but as I was looking at these, I was thinking about, you know, how the Eiffel Tower, you're in Paris, you want that picture with the Eiffel Tower. The thing that they thought would spoil the view becomes actually almost the most important element of the view. Amen. And in 2012, after a 10-year battle and 10-year building, the Shard opened much to the consternation of English heritage and other people. And in 2013, it won every single award in the world for architecture and for building. Because the thing that they thought spoilt the view actually became the view. And I read this about, about the guy, the guy who had the dream, Irvin Sellers. I read this about, he had, you know, if they say, uh, if you are with this guy for any, any time longer than half an hour, he will say this quote to you. It's his favorite quote, and it's by George Bernard Shaw. And I thought, it's a great quote. He says, the, unreason the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. The reasonable man thinks it can't be done and therefore doesn't try. The unreasonable man tries and often succeeds. Dream builders are in the camp of the unreasonable man because we, we live and we walk by faith, not by sight, not by reason, because God is God. The one who's building the church is the creator of heaven and earth. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's got the whole world in his hands. He is God. We are the unreasonable people. And this idea, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. And I think so often it's easier for us to try and do that, to adapt ourselves to the world around us. Even as Christians, I think we often do that. We did a whole series at the beginning of the year, if you remember, The Way, because you know, the world will tell us that we can choose our own way, we can choose our own truth, we can choose our own life, but Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We don't adapt ourselves to the world's way of looking at things. We stay on the path with Jesus. We walk that narrow path, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, in the passage that we read at the beginning, we can see that King Saul has has forgotten the truth. He's forgotten the truth. He's forgotten that he is king over God's chosen people. And he's forgotten that the enemy that's facing him is in the land that God had promised the people. He's looking with his eyes. He's looking with his occipital lobe instead of his parietal lobe. He's not imagining what God could do. He's seeing what is. If we read in the previous chapter, um, we see that Saul started with 3,000 men and now it's gone down to 600. And it tells us that the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. This is what 
Saul is looking at with his eyes and he forgets the truth that God is in control and that he can expect great things from God. And this is the difference between Jonathan and Saul. In many respects, they were the same. They were the same blood. Jonathan was Saul's son. They were facing the same enemy. They were in the, in the same circumstance. They had the same resources. They had the same access to God. But Jonathan sees it, expects great things from God, and so attempts great things for God, whereas Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree, waiting. And his army is getting discouraged and they're leaving him. And they're all filled with fear and apathy. So, three lessons then from this account of Jonathan and his arbor bearer as we expect great things and attempt great things. The first lesson, don't be afraid to move in the maybe. Move in the maybe. Okay, let's read what it says in verse 6. It says, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men, perhaps, or maybe, or what if. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Perhaps. And, and what he's doing here is putting the enemy in the right context, these uncircumcised men. In other words, these are not God's people. We are God's people. These are not God's people. They are uncircumcised. That's what he's saying. And he's putting God in the right context. He's saying, God, nothing can hinder the Lord, even if there's only a few of us. Putting the situation in the right context, putting our God in the right context. And I love the language here, the perhaps, the maybe, the lack of certainty, the application of hope. We should have a go at this. Maybe God will do something incredible. And it's so uncertain, isn't it? I'm going to Uganda on Tuesday with Matt Meller. Now, if Matt Meller had come to me and said, will you come with me to Uganda? Perhaps we'll come back alive. <laughs> then I would have thought twice. I would go, really? Okay. That's not kind of, that doesn't fill me with confidence. And, but I, I love this, the idea that actually we can move on a perhaps. We can move on a maybe. Because we have two choices. <clears throat> We can either stay under the pomegranate tree, we can stay in the safety where maybe we're not going to get hurt if we do that because we're so far away from the battle lines, maybe we won't get hurt, but at the same time we'll definitely not win any victory if we do that. Or we can push out, push forward, find a bigger dream and go for it. And maybe it won't work, but maybe God will step in and act in our behalf. Maybe. And we can apply this thinking to our lives. We can apply it to our ministry and to our calling. We can either merrily go along, being careful not to cause offense, not lifting our head up, adapting ourselves to the world around us, forgetting the size of our God. Or we can start dreaming bigger dreams. We can get a bigger vision for the future of ourselves and for this church. And we can allow those dreams to permeate us and move us to action. Maybe, just maybe, God will do something miraculous and change our world. I remember the Sunday morning when I felt like God said to me, again, this was 20-odd years ago, God said to me, I want you to hand in your notice at the work you were in. 
And at that time, I was working for the Royal Bank of Scotland. Uh, I hadn't long got married, and we had a home, we had a mortgage. Fru was working for a Christian charity, so wasn't earning very much. And so it was a big deal, God saying, hand in your notice. And I could have stayed under the pomegranate tree. I could have said, yes, God, I will do that just as soon as the next thing is revealed, as soon as the next step is there. But God was calling me to make a step of faith. To hand in my, so I did. I handed in my notice, and I learned that six weeks. I learned so much about myself and about, about God. Waiting, not allowing me to pursue anything, but just waiting for God to do something, making that step of faith. And actually, I, le- you know, I learned to trust God. And it wasn't until the day before I was due to leave the bank that the next thing revealed itself. God opened the next door. And what I've learned uh, since then is that whenever I want God to move, I have to move first. He awaits for me to move first. He expects me to move first. A move of God, I would say, rarely, if ever, um, happens without a step of faith. And if we are wanting God to do something new, something miraculous, then instead of waiting, we need to say, come on, push forward, maybe God will, will step in on our behalf. It's like the nation of Israel crossing the Jordan River into the promised land. And God said, you've got to put your foot in that river first. And it tells us the river was in flood. It was kind of fast flowing and the priests are holding the Ark of the Covenant and they have to put their foot in the river before the river stops. And as soon as they do, the river is held upstream. But until they actually put their foot in it, nothing. The river is just flowing fast. We need to be people who put our foot in it more and more, you know? You know what I mean? Yeah? Be willing to take that step of faith. God wants to teach us trust because as we trust him more, we will expect greater things, will lead us to attempt greater things. All right, so don't be afraid to move in the maybe. The second thing, don't be afraid to risk your resources. Don't be afraid to risk your resources. Have you ever heard of the expression? It's a, it's a kind of a sporting expression, used more in America, uh, throwing a Hail Mary. Throw in a Hail Mary. I don't know if you know that expression. Uh, let me give you some context for that. If you, there's a basketball game and it's kind of running towards the end of the game and the, the clock is counting down and the game is tied at 48 points all and it's a championship game and you really want to win it and the last few seconds are on the clock. Five, four, three, two, one. And just before, that split second before the buzzer sounds, somebody will throw, wherever they are on the court, they will throw that ball towards the basket in the hope that it will go in. Because as long as they throw that ball before the buzzer sounds, whatever happens in that next few seconds counts towards the game. That's throwing a Hail Mary. It's not what you would normally do in the run of the game, but it's, it's what you do in that moment, because just perhaps if it goes in, we will win this game. We will win the championship. It's a maybe. It's a perhaps. Now, in this account, it's been a difficult time for the Israelite nation. The Philistines had uh, you know, created this huge army, and it says that they have got rid of all blacksmiths from Israel because they don't want them making weapons. So at this point, in the previous verse, uh, in chapter 13, it says, So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Two swords in the whole of the army. Two swords. Like, that is devastating, right? And what's Jonathan doing? 
He's risking 50% of their weapons on a Hail Mary, on a maybe. He's risking, it's a huge risk. If they get killed or captured, they've lost one of two swords that they've got. And then you've got the poor armor bearer who doesn't even have a weapon at all. He's just there. And he, oh, he's got a brilliant, he's got a brilliant response, hasn't he? The armor bearer in verse 7, he says this. Uh, uh, Do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. He's got no weapon. He's a young guy. Jonathan said, maybe, maybe God will step in. Yes, let's do it. (laughs) I remember there's a, uh, Bear Grill says this in one of his books. He says, be the most enthusiastic person in the room. And I love this, this young armor bearer. He just seems, yes, I will follow you. Let's try it. We've got, you know, what have we got to lose? Well, your life, obviously, the weapon. Um, he doesn't say, that's a great plan, Jonathan. I'm just going to stay here and intercede on your behalf. You go with the sword. You go with the sword, and I'm right here praying for you. He says, no, I am with you, heart and soul. I'm following you, the two of us together. Jonathan is attempting great things. And so is the armor bearer. And I actually love this idea of, of community, the two of them. It's not one of them, there's two of them. They're this working together, the unity between the two of them. Because we can do so much more together. We are not simply in this series, we're not simply encouraging you to chase your own personal dreams. Although it does, it does work, it kind of is valid. But we're saying actually we can, we can pursue dreams together in community. Uh, In Ecclesiastes, it says two are better than one because if one falls, the other can pick him up. In Deuteronomy, it says one can chase a thousand, two can chase ten thousand. We can do so much more together in community. And here, Jonathan is standing arm in arm with his armor bearer, heading towards a battle on a maybe, on a perhaps. What does Jonathan say? Jonathan said to him, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And again, I love this idea that Jonathan's not saying, he's give, the Lord has given them into my hands, into the hands of Jonathan. He doesn't say the Lord has given them into our hand, armor bearer. He said the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel because our victory is our victory. Our, you know, victory that we will win this day is actually not for us. God is doing it on behalf of all of us. And when you have a win, we all have a win. When I have a win, we all have a win. This is community. And then that previous verse, the two sentences, two small words. Do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. Do and go. Do is this Hebrew word, asa, which means follow through. It means run with it, build it, do it. Go for it. Dream builders do. They act. They take the vision. They take the dream. And they run with the dream. Moving beyond the dream into action. Expecting great things. And then go. This word go is the Hebrew word nata. Not nata. N-A-T-A. Nata. Which actually is a great word. It means extend yourself. Grow yourself. Stretch yourself. Go. Attempt great things. This is how we will grow. Don't be afraid of moving on a maybe, of risking your resources, and don't be afraid of falling flat on your face. I just like, 
I like alliteration, right? Moving the maybe, risky resources, fall flat on your face. Um, Napoleon said this, he said, he who fears being conquered is sure of defeat. C.S. Lewis said this, failures are finger posts on the way to achievement. Failures are just finger posts on the way to achievement. Because it's ultimately the fear of failing. It's the fear of falling flat on our face that will stop us moving in a maybe and stop us risking our resources. If I do that, what if it goes wrong? What if I fail? What if I mess up? What if it doesn't happen? What if it doesn't go the way I expect it to go? It's fear. And we're not called to live in fear. Has anybody heard of James Dyson? Dyson? Hoovers? Yeah, he spent 10 years trying to make that Hoover work. In fact, what he said was this. He said, I made 5,127 prototypes before I got it right. There were 5,126 failures. But I've learned from each one of them, so I don't mind failure. I don't mind failure. And I'm not, it's, not, it's not saying, okay, I failed, so I'm just going to put on a brave face and soldier through. It's looking at the setbacks and the difficulties differently. It's looking at them as opportunities to say, okay, that didn't work. Now I know that. Let's try this. Because maybe, maybe God will move on our behalf. I know from my own failures that they were kind of steps on the way to uh, the place that God wanted me. Um, a few years ago, so at the time, I, obviously I left the bank and I, and I got a job in music and then I started working as a freelance, freelance composer. And then a couple of years later, I felt God calling me, pushing me to go and go back to university and do a master's degree in composing for film and television. And, and I felt God push me and all the doors, kind of all the steps kind of opened up. And I knew this is a God thing. And, um, and I love, as you know, I love film and TV music. I love it's, it's kind of my passion. And I was sure that I was doing this because God wanted me to be the next John Williams or Hans Zimmer. I was certain of it. God's opening these doors. This is my, this is my route forward. And I went and I got my degree and I got a distinction. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I'll really stop. No. Um, and I thought, this is it. Is the world ready for me? Here I come. I formed my own company, CMS, Creative Music Solutions. I borrowed a shed load of money from the bank in order to start this company. I, I spent months learning how to build websites. And I built this all singing, all dancing websites. I learned how to do design. I, I bought all these recording studio equipment. And I started to record some stuff. And I put it out on my website. And then I waited for all the commissions to roll in. And I waited, and I waited, and nothing happened. I completely failed. It was such a big failure. And I thought, God, you opened all those doors for this. Why would you do that? If, if this wasn't where you wanted me to go, why, why is this not working? I feel like I've done everything I can. And then it wasn't long before I got a phone call from another university saying, would you come and lecture at our university? So I went for an interview, and, and they said, uh, in order for you to lecture, do you have a master's degree? I was like, well, yeah, I do. And they said, and would you be willing to, to teach the module on composing and arranging for film and TV? I'm like, yes. And so for the next 17 years, I ended up teaching the thing that I love to teach, 
the thing that I love, that I'm passionate about. And suddenly that thing that I thought was a failure turned to be the most instrumental thing in my life. And just like the shard and just like the Eiffel Tower, those things that we thought spoiled the view, actually becoming the most important element of the view, as we look back on our lives, those things that we think spoil the view when we're in it, suddenly we see they're the most important part of the view because God is ordering our steps. And we can't see it when we're in it, but we can see it afterwards as we move through it. The scripture that we read last week from Romans 8, we know that in all things, God works everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on. He, said, uh, he says, uh, in all these things, in all what things? In, in, in all the highs, in all the lows, in all the successes, in all the failures, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is the best news, isn't it? This is the best news. We don't need to be afraid of failing. We don't need to be afraid of falling on our face, of missing a step. And we definitely shouldn't allow the fear of, fa- fear of failing stop us from moving into the dreams that God's got for us. Maybe it's time that we moved on a maybe. Maybe it's time we risked our resources like you know, the parable of the talents the two guys who risked what they had in order to grow what they had. Maybe we need to take that step and so that we can hear God's voice, well done, good and faithful servant. And I love how Jonathan, as, he, as he's moved on this maybe, as he's risked his resources, and he suddenly he finds confidence and faith. He says, so Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. I don't even know what he killed them with. He had no weapon, like, it's just like, <laughs> like strangling them or something. Uh, But um, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. They did their part. And then we read that God steps in and he brings an earthquake and he makes a ground shake and he makes a panic among the Philistines and the whole victory comes. But it starts on a maybe. It starts with them doing their part. We do what we can do in our own limited way and then God steps in and does what he can do which is unlimited. No boundaries. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I'm done but actually before we finish I'd kind of like uh, to give us a chance to respond to give us a chance to Maybe commit, maybe commit our path in a meaningful way to say, yes, God, I'm sorry that I haven't been as aware of the dreams that you've got for me. I'm sorry that I haven't been willing to step out. I'm sorry that I haven't gone on a maybe and risked what you've given me in a, in a new way and seen you move. But now I'm prepared to commit to this path. To expect great. I'm sorry I've forgotten that I can expect great things because you're God. And I'm sorry that I haven't attempted great things. So, I mean, if you want to, I think actually it'd be good for us all to stand together. And if you want to receive this, I'm just going to pray 
uh, I guess, a prayer of repentance and then a prayer of blessing. And if you want to receive this and do this, then just hold out your arms with me and we'll do this together. Lord God, I pray that you would examine our hearts and our thoughts. See if there is any wrong motives in us, Lord God, and help us and shine a light on those things. But God, we want to, we want to be willing to see you move in a, in a bigger and, and better way. We want to fulfill your purposes, God. We want to know your dreams. We want to engage our thinking and, and, and see you move. Lord, we want to be willing to, to risk it all on, a, on maybe you will step in because we can expect great things for you. And Lord God, where we haven't, where we've kind of allowed fear and apathy to control our actions, to control the way that we talk about ourselves, to the way that we step out, to the way we talk to others. Lord, where we've done that, Lord, we are sorry. Where we've forgotten, where we've stayed under the pomegranate tree, away from the action, Lord God, we are sorry. And we commit to working your purposes and the dreams you've got for us out together. We commit to working this out together, Lord God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.